we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hey, loyal listeners, we now have a Patreon. If you are interested and able to support the ongoing production of this podcast, please take a moment to check it out. There will be a link in the podcast description and on our socials. Patreon is a subscription service where content creators like us can be directly supported by fans like you. Thank you for your consideration. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. And welcome to today's episode. Today, I've got Lauren. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me today. I'm very excited. Yes. I've been looking forward to this topic. Yeah. And I'm so excited to get into it. So um, how we usually start is, where did you grow up? Oh, I am a Canberra girl. So yeah, down south in the freezing cold majority of the year. So I grew up there actually on the outskirts on on organic food farm. Um, Yeah, it was a really great upbringing. I I can't complain at all, but I did did get itchy feet by the time I was about 16 and, you know, slowly removed myself from the the good old ACT um, and moved up to Queensland in 2006, some 17 years ago, I calculated recently. So yeah, I consider myself a Gold Coast local these days. Love it and would never go back (laughs) (laughs) to the freezing cold. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was a good good place to grow up, but very happy to be raising my kids here. And what got you into the disability sector? Oh, um, a long trail of career career trials that I sort of tested and tried and then ended up um, happily combining all of those skills into really what I found was my passion was helping people at the end of the day. When I asked myself the question of what I want to do, there was a real core, a core desire there to help people in what I was doing. A, because I think it's just ingrained in me as a person um, and B, I get a lot of satisfaction from seeing really good outcomes for people um, and so I wanted to find a career path that helped me do that. And I suppose I started out in the health sector a long, long, long time ago um, and always really enjoyed that face-to-face connection with people in helping them, you know, plan out their healthcare journey. And I had, you know, a, a great a great love of, of seeing the outcomes that a holistic health journey brought people down and how it changed their lives. At the same time, I studied business management and also had a, a family history of real estate investment and went from the health industry into the real estate um, industry um, and sort of combined my love for real estate and love for people into like a research role, um, helping investors in Southeast Queensland find suitable investment properties. Um, this was all pre-NDIS days, so around 2014. 
Um, and I did that for a couple of years and thoroughly enjoyed it. But as the NDIS started to roll out and we got wind of, you know, a new real estate market essentially forming under the NDIS in specialist disability accommodation, we really put our skill set and, you know, our love of helping people and real estate together um, and developed a bit of a model on how we can help the industry grow, make sure investors understand why they're doing SDA instead of a regular residential investment and really be able to follow that pathway for participants to a really great outcome and in the end satisfy my helping people desire. (laughs) So um, yeah, long story short, it came from health to real estate to NDIS and I'm very, very lucky to have been able to work um, alongside some really great colleagues in the industry such as yourself. We met very early on um, and really, you know, feel that feel that passion for utilising the NDIS and really finding those positive outcomes amongst Australia's sort of private investment market that then affects, you know, our, our vulnerable people with disability in the country and bringing those two parts of Australia together for such a great solution it's just it's it's kept me very driven and very grounded and I I just love it awesome awesome so now you own a business yeah called disability housing yep disability housing Australia and what do you do there what do we do so (laughs) we do a lot of things primarily housing related so what we did is basically our original business concept to bring the investment industry and the NDIS participants that needed housing together was to build a website platform that allowed providers with housing to list their accommodation vacancy. So to be the marketplace for tenants to find houses. In doing that, our business grew to include um, SDA report writing and reviews. So, you know, identifying that people needed to actually gain this SDA funding so they could rent a specialised house. We sort of really sought lots and lots of feedback on what the NDIS wanted to see. We, we have a very good understanding of the SDA legislation and the eligibility criteria so that we can really identify why someone's eligible, unpack that for them and um, apply for that funding in their plan, hopefully with a really great outcome. Um, And if not a great outcome on the first go, then try and try again, um, of course. (laughs) And so we we also do SDA reviews, so reviewable reviewable decision. And yeah, we've um, successfully got SDA in many, many of a plan um, and are then happily able to try and help that person find suitable SDA accommodation. Um, So that flicks to the other side of our service, which is, you know, having a large range of SDA built property that we can sort of source for people looking for housing and link together um, and really do that assessment and transition piece for a person looking for a housing solution. Um, So we really help tenants find SDA accommodation, link them together um, and help them transition in and, you know, achieve, achieve their housing goal. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It is. It's lots of fun. Yeah. Keeps us on our toes every day um, <laughs> and doesn't come without its challenges, as you would know, being a, a great support coordinator. So, yeah, th- there's been lots of ups and downs, but essentially that's what we do. And we have a, a team of people that are our housing connections team. 
that are really great at you know understanding that legislation and getting good outcomes for participants and then um, a team of people out there sourcing really great SDA properties and advising investors on what to build that will actually really meet the market so you know what the participants want not what the investors necessarily think they want so we are that channel of feedback hallelujah um. <laughs> it's, I I remember because I met you when I was very green. So was I. And yes. we went out to a house and it was meant to be high physical support and they'd put a bath in it. Yes. And yes. I vaguely remember that. There was we, been a few. We both sort of giggled and were like, mm. what are they thinking? Why did they do that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, the early days were fun. It was yeah. investors trying to figure out what the design standard actually meant and why they should be doing it. Yes. Um, and, you know, to change their thinking of what constitutes a good rental. And so things like baths were unsuitable and completely not required in a lot of circumstances, especially at high physical support. Yeah. Why would you not put carpet down? why is this block not suitable for SDA when it's at the top of a hill? Um, you know, all of those great questions. Um, and we've seen a huge a huge shift from those really early SDAs. And I still applaud those investors as much as some of them, right. you know, miss the mark a little bit or, or didn't contemplate the, the full need. You know, they were the early adopters. Um, and to this day, those properties, some of them got modified to, to really help with those, those hurdles. But to this day, they're still serving a good purpose, yeah. um, which is really, really nice to see, you know, six years on, um, you know, some of these properties have still got the same tenants in there and they've really made it their home and, you know, they're on, moved on to having a family together in that home um, because they, they do feel safe and they have, you know, got their support needs met in a safe environment um, and built a community around them. So very positive still. <laughs> awesome, yeah, awesome. Yeah. So we have gotten ahead of ourselves and we need to go back to what is SDA? Yeah, true. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to, I thought about um, separating this into two perspectives because I think it, it is important to see the whole market and you can pretty much clearly put a line through the middle. Part one is um, what is an SDA property? Um, and so we'll unpack that a little bit. And then also who is eligible for SDA funding? You know, so essentially there's the the tenant at the end of the the pathway um, who will be the renter. Um, so is completely important in this whole process because without tenants approved with funding, there is no market for an investor to build to. But why don't we focus on the built form first and we'll unpack that a little bit. So... SDA um, or specialist disability accommodation is a house, a unit or a villa that has been built to an accessibility standard for people with a disability. Um, so they look and feel like a normal house or apartment, but they have special features that make it easier to get around in if you have trouble mobilising or if you have high support needs that a specially designed property will help you to live safely and independently. Um, so these there, there's a couple of ways we can break that down further um, and that is building type and design type. But what I'll do first is actually go through some of the key features that you'll find in one of these properties so that you can get a visual of, okay, this is what the changes might actually look and feel like when you walk into an SDA. 
So imagine we're looking at a, a regular house in a suburb on the Gold Coast. The, as you come up to the property, it'll be a reasonably flat driveway, um, only with a slight gradient. There will be a pathway down to the footpath as well. The front doorstep will be nice and large so that there is turning circles available for somebody in a wheelchair. Um, and the doorway will be quite, quite wide. There'll also be no step to any of the entrance or exit points throughout the property. So as you can imagine, accessing the property um, from the footpath or from the driveway would be easy um, in a, with a mobility device, whether that be a walking stick or an electric wheelchair. As you roll through the property, there'll be wider corridors, large turning circles in kitchens, living rooms, laundries, bathrooms and bedrooms, um, so that you know if you have large equipment, you'll be able to easily access all areas of the house. There's things like larger light switches throughout the property and PowerPoint switches. Um, in the higher levels of SDA, there are also additional PowerPoints located at all doors and windows, um, which allow assistive tech to be plugged in. Um, so things like automatic blinds and doorways um, so that you, know, you can enter and exit your property at at your own will, which is a really amazing idea for a lot of people. There's so many people that can't even do, you know, that independently because the door is obstructed or it's heart heavy to open or there's a step at the entrance or whatever. So these things are really there to overcome all of those safety issues and independence barriers. So you'll also find, you know, luminance contrast um, that can look like, you know, dimmable lights. Um, it, it, the visual contrast is also darker bench tops to cupboard doors, lighter flooring when there's a change in the, in the flooring type, contrasted paint around windows and door frames so that an entry or exit point is easily identifiable for somebody with a vision impairment or a cognitive impairment. You'll find properties that are built for um, the robust design category are built to with, withstand a higher level of property damage and also to uh, minimise risk for either a participant or a support worker. And that may be by having reinforced walls, perspex windows, you know, commercial grade fixtures and fittings, that kind of thing, which will realistically, the goal is to make sure the property withstands a higher amount of damage. So these are the things that SDA might look and feel like when you go in. Now, if we look at the different building types that those features can be applied to, because they really just do suit slightly different needs, essentially. So we've got four different building types, group house, which is for four to five residents, this building type is slowly being phased out. Yay! Yes. <laughs> Can we get a round of applause? Um, so the reason they're phasing that out, and that that recently was um, was explained in the SDA price review that came out in July. So the NDIS has recognised that that is not the preferred housing model for for our society. Finally, it only took them ten years. It did, it did. But hey, we've come down from like twelve to <laughs> five, and now five to to three maximum. So we're expecting sort of between now and the next five-year review and the and the next round of design standards tweaking that that'll be made official. But they have hinted towards, um, you know, that group home category no longer being funded in the future. So what that does is in turn decrease investment in that type of property. Um, so although there has been some investment in that type of property over the last six to seven years, um, there won't be 
much moving forward. So yeah, essentially a group house is four to five residents. So you'll find basically six bedrooms. One will be reserved for a support worker to operate out of, um, and they'll be expected to be four or five residents in that property. So they're quite large properties. Um, there's usually a, a couple of shared bathrooms and you would hope, you know, multiple living areas and a decent sized backyard, but that's that's to be argued sometimes. <laughs> and then the next uh, type, uh, building type would just be house. Um, house is registered for two to three residents um, and generally is a three, a three to four bedroom home. What we're seeing in the industry is that most of those resident bedrooms will have an ensuite. It's not required, but I think the investment industry has picked up that most people would like an ensuite for privacy and safety and all of those things. So that's the model we see quite often. Houses can also be a really great option for a family. Um, the NDIS has um, really cemented a suitable funding model for families with an SDA resident as part of the family to live together in a house, which was previously quite difficult to achieve. But we've been really, really pleased to see houses utilised by families with one SDA resident um, as a solution as well. So the houses you'll generally find out in the housing estates, you know, new house and land packages. So to us, we always correlate houses with greenfield estates. So that's new housing estates where there's, you know, new footpaths and new communities and new facilities going into those areas. But sometimes that part of the development hasn't happened yet. So it, it is a location factor that you really have to consider whether a house is suitable for a person, given that sometimes they can be a little underdeveloped at the time that the house is being built. And sometimes they can be a little further away from a CBD location um, because the, the price of the land is cheaper further out and it's often really hard to get a good block in a CBD location at a price that's going to actually work. So, um, yeah, that's what we find. The houses are out in the new housing estates and serve a great purpose but can sometimes be a bit of a location issue. They're also away from, typically away from public transport yeah. as well as not being near a major hospital or not being near even a GP. Yeah. You know, I think they're some of the, the, the issues that we find and some of the SDA providers are trying to look for blocks of land that are near yeah. trains and buses and yeah easily accessible easily accessible to yeah. get to anywhere else you might need to go anywhere else especially if you don't have your own transport you know and you're relying on a support worker or an informal support person to drive you places the location factor is huge and not having access to public transport or very scarce public transport or public transport that you have to drive 10 minutes to get to um, is kind of pointless. Yes. Um, it is one of the biggest things that we discuss with investors that are looking to get into the market is, look, your location is key um, and you really need to consider how easy this property would be for somebody to, you know, be close to convenient lifestyle options and as well, you know, access to support so quite often these locations might be in new estates in the back of a regional town and you've, you've got a real hurdle to overcome there in getting support workers to actually attend. 
because A, there's a minimal workforce available and if they have to travel 30 minutes to get to you, then they're going to take a job closer to town. Um, so it can really affect a participant's availability to support um, as well as their ability to access, you know, GP, Woolworths, you know, all of the convenient things in life. So anyway, that's that's a big part of the house group um, because we find that's that's a limiting factor sometimes. From there, we'd go to the building type group, townhouse, villa, duplex. Um, so that basically covers all three of those building types. And so that essentially can look like a townhouse complex, um, all generally single level, unless it's an improved livability category where you can have stairs. However, we don't see them very often. Most of them are all single level. And that I, th I think the SDA design standards suggest that they are separated by a vertical wall, so side by side. That type of building can have anywhere from one to three residents in them. Most of the ones we've seen are one to two residents um, because I think generally in a townhouse complex is a size factor that they have to fit the building type in and, and quite often you can't fit three residents in a townhouse. Yeah, you sort of think they're going to be smaller than a house. So yeah, that's, um, that's generally what we see in the market. The townhouse and villas that we've seen are... A, a really great option because they generally bring the location factor slightly closer to a, a centralised, you know, CBD type area um, because of that medium density zoning. Um, so developers are able to build more condensed communities um, on a block closer to a CBD location rather than out in, in the new developments. So generally your location factor is a little better. Um, your access to public transport can be better. You're usually closer to a hospital and a larger set of shops and public transport. Um, so we do find that location factors in villas increase the investor's chance of finding suitable tenants because the demand for that kind of property is quite high. Okay, so moving from that cohort into apartment building type. So an apartment is a, you know, generally vertically stacked properties um, separated by a horizontal floor. Um, so, you know, these can be either SDA specific builds where you've got small apartment towers that are just SDA, or you can have what we call a salt and pepper mix, which is regular residential units combined with SDA units as well. You know, there's quite a few on the Gold Coast and there's, you know, all over Brisbane and whatnot that might have you know, 80 units and 10 of those will be SDA. Or you can have your specified SDA apartment blocks um, where, the, you know, the whole property has been designed with SDA in mind. They are generally for one or two SDA residents. Um, and so you'll normally find one or two bedroom units. Um, occasionally a developer will be able to squeeze in a third bedroom just for fun, um, but it is expensive to do so, so it's not, it's not usually the case. No. Um, so if you find a three bedroom unit, I'd jump on it. But yeah, look, the, the apartments have been really, really popular in terms of the single resident um, option. So if you are eligible for SDA and eligible to live on your own or with, you know, your spouse or child, so as the only SDA resident, um, an apartment block usually offers the best location because again, looking at local council rules, you can build high density residences um, in great locations. So it usually overcomes all of the location hurdles that people are dealing with and can be very, very attractive from a tenant side of things. 
I guess the challenge we've all faced in the last couple of years is the real estate boom through COVID, um, which has really changed the feasibility of developers buying inner city blocks um, and able to develop that within a scope that is actually feasible to do. So, you know, construction cost increases and land price increases have really changed what the SDA market you know, looks like in terms of return on investment. And so that plus the SDA price review this year, we've seen a bit of a slowdown in the apartment construction, but we're, we're really hopeful that, you know, in the end, the SDA prices that an investor can gain are, are still well worth doing apartment blocks because as we see it, they are the best located um, and the highest demand from a tenant perspective. So that's all of the building types um, wrapped up in a nutshell. Um, I hope that was really, really easy to understand. Um, but what we do then is we really look at the design type. So the building type relates to the bricks and mortar. What kind of house is it? And the design type relates to what level of design is laid across that, that building type. So the design types is four levels and we don't refer to them as levels, but for a, I'm, I'm trying to do a visual aid through audio. So for those four levels, if you think of a sliding scale, you've got the first level is improved livability. That design standard is incorporating a reasonable level of physical access and enhanced provision for people with sensory, intellectual or cognitive impairment. So those visual contrasts I spoke of before with the luminescence and the and the contrast of doors and windows, you'll have slightly wider doorways than a regular residential property and you'll have step-free entrance and exits as well as a couple of other bits and pieces. But it's it's not for a full scale, you know, person in an electric wheelchair. There's not the circulation space. The doors aren't quite wide enough. Um, and there's not all the provisions somebody in an electric wheelchair would require. Um, so it's more for somebody perhaps that's got a walking frame or has, you know, health issues to manage, so epilepsy and seizures and that kind of thing, um, or high support needs, as well as intellectual sensory impairments. Can, that can be a really suitable environment for them um, and can really help with them being independent within that house. Um, so that's sort of your, your starting point for SDA. A lot of the improved livability houses look really, really regular um, and you wouldn't even really pick up that it's an SDA build as such. Even the bathrooms aren't, they're not considered an accessible bathroom as such. You might find properties with shower screens, although we do still, you know, suggest against it when they can. But essentially they present as a regular property with these few feature upgrades. From there we move on to uh, fully accessible. So fully accessible housing is one that's been designed to incorporate a high level of physical access for people with a significant physical impairment. So an easy way to sort of identify a fully accessible property would be a wheelchair accessible property at its core. Um, so again it's got slightly wider doorways than the level before. Uh, wider hallways, it's got a full accessible bathroom so you would have reinforced walls ready for grab rails to be plugged into, you've got accessible toilets which are higher, you've got accessible sinks in the bathroom, no shower screens and step free hub like no steps in the bathroom and then you know looking at things like the kitchen you've got accessible underbench space in the kitchen you've got um, really wide turning circles so island benches are not really a great thing in, in SDAs you've got step-free exits and entries all over the house 
you know, bedrooms have got a certain amount of turning space to account for equipment being in the room. So, so fully accessible is a really popular category. It, it um, supports a lot of, a wide range of people depending on what equipment they have. Um, you know, some days they might be mobile, some days they're not. And so this kind of caters to, to all angles. The next level up from that, and I'm, I'm sectioning robust off, we'll talk about that in a moment, but I like to do all the mobility ones together because to me that makes more sense practically. So the highest level of the, um, you know, changes within a house is high physical support needs. So that design level is really your top echelon of design standards. It is everything that I've just mentioned for fully accessible plus some. So the doorways are slightly wider again. The property has got extra provision for assistive tech. So you'll have uh, PowerPoints located at all doors and all windows so that assistive tech can be plugged in um, if you need to you know, automate the doors or the blinds. The lights and things are all smart so that they can be utilised on an app. You'll have a video intercom system where, um, you know, a person can let somebody in from the app that they're using, whether that be on their phone or on a, a in-house sort of a touch screen. And you'll have ceiling hoist provision. So that is one of the bigger, bigger things is that the, in the ceiling, um, in a HPS property, you will be able to add a ceiling hoist in without, you know, ripping the roof out and putting steel beams in. Um, so that has to be in, you know, before they finish the property. On top of that, HPS has got uh, UPS, so uninterrupted power supply in the bedroom and it's automatically wired to the automatic door too. So if the power supply switches off, you can still get out. Okay, so the UPS system there is to make sure that any life-saving equipment does not switch off in the event of a blackout. Um, and there is a two-hour battery backup in every HPS property so that, you know, in, in the event of an emergency and the power shuts off, that emergency equipment will still operate for at least two hours, allowing, you know, emergency services to come and assist. So that's been really great for those that, you know, are perhaps bedridden and have a high-low bed um, or have an oxygen machine or a CPAP machine, knowing that, you know, during the night if there's a power outage, they're going to be okay um, while they raise that alarm. So, um, yeah, HPS category has been really important in terms of um, an investor looking at which level to design to, knowing that if they build that higher level, their property will be suitable for those participants that are funded under that as well. Um, so it kind of gives them a bigger umbrella to, you know, meet the demand. And HPS has certainly been a category that uh, exploring eligibility with participants has been really obvious to sort of go well yes you're eligible due to xyz mobility challenge and then on top of that xyz you know support need which is quite common within that you know cohort of the disability so yeah they're the they're the building types and the design types broken down so you basically layer one on top of the other depending on what you want to build and where you can build it and what level you want to build that to um, and of course, the, the funding that a participant receives is attached to both the building type and the design type. Um, and they go up accordingly. So from improved livability, fully accessible and high physical support. And again, on a sliding scale from group house, house, townhouse to apartment as well. 
Now, I haven't forgotten robust, so <laughs> let me just briefly go back to robust. So robust housing is sort of, I, I like to think of it as a slightly different category. It has got some accessible features as well, and we'd be thinking, you know, slightly more accessible features and improved livability, but not quite as many as fully accessible. But the house is built to be very resilient, reducing the likelihood of reactive maintenance and reducing the risk to the participant or the community. So essentially it's, it's housing that is built to withstand a higher amount of use and has sort of built-in safety features that minimise risk for a person or for the supports. Um, so that can be extra entry and exit points, um, in particular out of, you know, the support workers' room so that they have a safe place to exit if, you know, one of the exits is not unsafe. There's also things like reinforced walls, so a higher grade material for wall linings, fixtures and fittings that withhold, uh, withstand a lot more wear and tear. Um, so things like toilet seats or taps or shower heads can all be more of a commercial grade windows and and um, that kind of thing also have like either a perspex film or are made of not glass you know an alternative so that particular category often where we're looking for participants that are mobile um, but perhaps have behaviors that can be managed in an environment quite well and sometimes you get a, a bit of a combination um, so participants that also have mobility challenges but also have behaviours so in those cases we're really looking at what is the priority and which design category best meets the need for that person and then perhaps having a couple of tweaks um, made to a property to you know make sure that the mobility side of things is covered and the behaviour side of things is covered too. Yeah. So yeah so that's robust. Um, I think robust is really important because I do see a lot of people who could you know do punch walls mm -hmm. quite often and yeah. you're constantly having to repatch them up yes. and that can cost a lot of money and in the meantime the shards from that can also be a, a problem yeah. there's you know there's a lot of flow-on effects from that so the other thing is that I'm very strong on robust being a single participant yeah <laughs> I love that <laughs> how do you put two people in the one house we both have such high behaviours that yeah. we've deemed it necessary for them to live in such a reinforced house. Yes, it, it blows just, your mind. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's something that I touched on recently at our SDA price review seminar. Um, was that there was a huge increase in funding for robust shared residences. And I, I just said to the cohort of people there, listen, please don't get excited about seeing those figures and go out and build three resident robust homes because there will be no one living in them. Um, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's just not what people need. And we obviously do applications for robust and we've never in the six years we've been doing it, come across a, a participant that is a shared robust suggestion. So it's A, investors are looking at a price guide and being told, hey, you can earn this much money off building this kind of accommodation. But B, they're not then researching and finding out if anyone actually needs that accommodation, if the price 
price guide is reflective of the tenant demand. And in that case, it's absolutely not. Um, so I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that single resident robust is the way forward. And if you're going to build or have built a shared robust dwelling, then I would expect that that would be rented to participants that perhaps have got improved livability funding and that that property would be just as suitable for. So look, there's there's ways to utilise that stock that is out there. We've got investors ringing every day that um, unfortunately have purchased that kind of property and we do a lot of expectation setting um, and reality checks. Um, and that's, you know, that's for me, it's a bit sad. I feel, I feel bad for the investors that they've purchased a product that, you know, they didn't understand. But at the same time, I just go, well, you know, we all have the same tools and resources available to us. And, you know, if they didn't research that particularly well, then they're going to find out the hard way. But the outcome is still the same. You know, you won't rent a robust property to multiple residents in, in 99% of the cases. Yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) what can we do? They'll learn eventually. Yeah, and the other thing is that it's so hard to get them approved for, I mean, for SDA full stop. In general. (laughs) But (laughs) so you've got to look at beyond that, you know, how how many people are even being approved for this Mm. to warrant building this? That's right. So... You know, if if it's like 1% of 1% of the people on NDIS are getting yeah. approved for robust and then they're the ones, you know, they can't share. So why, why would you are they build? doing it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. And unfortunately, they put together demand data from the NDIS um, and price guide and they draw their own conclusions. Um, but what we always try and unpack in these information sessions is, you know, you can't draw your own conclusions if you have no understanding of the disability industry and what people actually need um, from those two sources, which is what investors get given um, a lot of the time from people that are marketing, you know, house and land packages, buy an SDA property and NDIS housing and you'll earn a mozza. Um, and they put those two data sets together and go, well, why wouldn't you build a three-bedroom robust house? <laughs> it gives you a really great income. And we go, well, there's no tenants that will move in there then. So I'm really sorry that's not going to be your outcome. Or sure, we'll look for it, but this is actually the reality. You need to get prepared for that. So, yeah, look, I, I'm not quite sure what the NDAS's intent was in increasing the prices in that category. But from from our experience, which is it is what we do, is link participants with housing on the very, very rare occasion we would come across a robust approved participant that can actually share safely. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know <laughs> how to get that message out there any clearer apart from try and educate and offer as much resources and feedback to the investment market as we possibly can. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's an ongoing challenge, but that's okay. We're willing to jump in and do our best. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... I feel like maybe that's part one knocked out in terms of like what an SDA is, how does it look and feel. I think the goal of SDA property is really to provide housing to people that are in unsuitable accommodation in terms of accessibility, um, assistive tech, and that will support their their needs and, and their requirements as per the disability. 
So, you know, if you think about pre-SDA days, the only properties that people with mobility, self-care and self-management challenges could go into were Department of Housing properties that have had maybe some modifications. They were properties owned by service providers that have been modified um, or they were private rentals that either the landlord has modified for the tenant if you're really lucky or privately owned properties that perhaps mum and dad have modified for an adult child and you know hopefully safely nested in a trust somewhere for that person so realistically you know that housing cohort didn't have an option they didn't have a part of the market that they just kind of went that's where I fit in that's where I need to go to look that's what that's the accommodation I need it was always it was always a, a compromise And it was, you know, we hear so many stories of people, you know, going, well, this is how I live in this house that I have to, you know, transfer into the shower on my bottom and I have to, you know, stay on the floor and bathe myself and then scoot back out because there's a step I have to get over and I can't do that safely. And so I only shower once a week. You know, it's, it's hearing those stories and going, well, crap, you know, this should have happened a hell of a lot, lot longer ago. But, you know, it's here now and I'm, I'm just so pleased to have had the privilege of seeing the journey that people have been on, not only to overcome their challenge of getting SDA in their plan, but of actually transitioning from these completely inadequate housing situations into an SDA that is just changing their life. Yeah. You know, and, and it's it's it gives me goosebumps to, to think about, you know, how how much safer they feel, how um, how much more settled their life is because they've got a long term accessible housing option that the the landlord isn't increasing the rent on, um, which is a challenge a lot of us are facing today. So, you know, to take that anxiety out of somebody who is vulnerable and has these additional needs and have society provide, you know, a a great housing option that is meant for them is just, it's, it's so good. So as much as I might find frustrations in it, there is so much good. So, yeah. Absolutely. So shall we move on to the participant side of SDA? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Well, I suppose, you know, in addressing that investment side, now we really look at um, the end piece, which is participants. And, and I, I prefer to, you know, refer to people as tenants because that's at the end of the day that's what that's what they're looking for they're looking for a rental um in some circumstances absolutely they can be their own landlord too so you know there's a there's a really great pathway for sda eligible people to own their own sda and claim their own funding also Um, we won't unpack that today because i think it's a specialized little niche of sda but we'll do in a general sense for you know a tenant's perspective on how to get sda funding So I think first and foremost, I'm going to pre-warn everybody that if you are not in a housing crisis and you think you might be eligible, now's the time to explore it. (laughs) I I remember, Hannah, our first SDA journey together, and I would hazard a guess that it was probably a nine to 12 month process. Oh, yes. Yeah. It was at least 12 months. Yes. And... Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. So complex and so many traumatic memories. But <laughs> um, what I can say is that the timeline of getting SDA approved in your plan has definitely increased. Hurrah. Um, however, if you are 
thinking of, of this as a housing option and recognising that this would be so suitable for you, come and talk to us early because there is still a timeline to get through with the NDIS and trying to do that under duress in a housing crisis is not ideal if you can avoid it. So generally we like to suggest that a, a timeline for assessing if you're SDA eligible, putting together the application and actually getting an outcome from the NDIS is sort of three to six months. And then quite often you do have to sort of justify more to really get the ideal outcome for you, which is uh, in terms of a review of that decision. Um, and that can take obviously an additional couple of months to coordinate more evidence and more justification and, you know, back and forth with the NDIA. So... Um, and if you end up at AAT, even, you know, even the funner. next two years or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The AAT, it, it still makes me shudder. But uh, good old Billy, Bill Shorten has made huge leaps and bounds in clearing out that pipeline of AAT cases. Um, and we did actually see, very gratefully, an, an influx of, of tenants inquiring that had just been through the AAT and had like an outcome given to them that was in line with their original request quite quickly um, during sort of the end part of last year into sort of mid this year. So we are seeing slightly less cases being referred to AAT but to this day if you do end up going to the AAT to really fight for what you believe is right for you the outcomes out of the AAT are still really positive and I I, I forget exactly the figure um, but there was a, a, a study recently released and I'm so sorry I can't remember who it was from I'd really like to credit them with it because it was good information. But the outcomes of people coming out of the AAT with an SDA decision were in the 90 percentile of what they originally asked for at, at their original application. Um, so although the timeline stretches out, and I know it can be um, sometimes a, a stressful time to go through AAT, I encourage you to do so if you get to that point um, because at the end of the day, your SDA approval stays with you permanently so you know it is worth the the battle originally to get the determination right if you can so unpacking who is eligible for sda <laughs> the ndis has got a set of rules that stipulate you know what is the eligibility criteria and what you have to prove to get that funding in your plan now, it's a similar process to that of applying for SIL or applying for, um, you know, ILO funding. You know, the process is slightly different, but the, the strategy behind it's the same. Um, you have to prove, to me, it's two key things. Uh, one is that you, the participant definitely has an extreme functional impairment and has very high support needs um, and, of course, meets the SDA needs requirement. So unpacking that extreme functional impairment, what does that mean? What does it look like? How do you prove it? An extreme functional impairment is basically a extremely reduced functional capacity to undertake or a psychosocial functioning in undertaking either mobility, self-care or self-management. So it doesn't have to be and, it's or. It can be one, two or three of those, um, those target areas. And on top of that, the participant must have a very high need for person-to-person -person supports in undertaking of that activity, even with assistive technology, equipment or home mods. So I think mobility visually is probably the easiest one to unpack. Does the person have an extreme functional impairment regarding mobility? Well, how would we assess that? 
can they mobilise? Can they self-transfer? Do they use equipment to get around safely? Do they require a support person to help them mobilise? You know, what are the risks associated with them mobilising in their current accommodation that are are really unsafe? (laughs) Um, So we, we basically... We unpack that. We make sure we've got really, really good reports to justify that extreme functional impairment claim against mobility, self-care or self-management and then highlight the support need that's basically required on top of that. So mobility, I think, is probably the easiest one to visualise. Like I said, you you need um, mobility assistance in in most of your day. Um, Your self-care is things like assistance with daily tasks, Um, So assistance with uh, personal hygiene, assistance with um, getting out into the community, assistance with cooking um, and eating, that kind of thing. So it's, it's essentially those daily tasks that you have an extreme functional impairment in completing independently or safely. Your self-management, if you have an extreme functional impairment in self-management, that can look like difficulty in decision-making, difficulty in having safe relationships, difficulty in financials, like financial management. So there's risks associated around financial management is, you know, they're very vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Taken advantage of. It, it can be difficulty in managing their daily schedule, so not knowing what the time is at certain parts of the day not being able to be um, organised to attend appointments and, and manage their life. So those things are often not a, a visual cue like, say, mobility might, might be. And we often find that uh, extreme functional impairment in self-management can often be linked to psychosocial or to um, that improved livability cohort, that that might be a really suitable option for them. And, of course, you can get a combination of all those three. My my biggest suggestion is that anyone looking to explore SDA eligibility is to contact a specialist like ourselves or or your support coordinator if they've got experience with it or your OT and really you know you need to get confirmation that you would be considered to have an extreme functional impairment. On top of that like the second layer once you've justified you know one or all or multiple of those areas of extreme functional impairment Um, You also then have to justify that you have got a high need for person-to-person supports available either immediately or consistently and that informal supports are not available or are, you know, inconsistent. When a participant can prove that they've got those very high support needs, they must also meet one of the following criteria, which is that they have either lived in SDA before or an SDA-like setting such as a aged care facility or been hospitalized for a really long time or have been living in a in a sill home with modifications done for a really long time and so transition into the regular housing market would be very difficult and unsuccessful or you know that they are at risk or they posed a risk to others that could be mitigated by SDA so it's all of those things combined that we have to justify and show the NDIS when we're applying for SDA. Um, We have to really address all sections of that legislation, so that's just like the sneak peek version. (laughs) There's obviously lots of additional clauses there that we have to relate back to why SDA would be the best solution and how it's going to mitigate those risks for that person and how it's going to increase independence and help them reach their goals and, you know, be value for money. Um, We love value for money. 
So I think, you know, in addressing all of those eligibility criteria, it sounds complex, but a lot of, a lot of the time it'll be really straightforward. Um, you know, for, for somebody that's, you know, a quadriplegic, they're going to be in a, in a mobility device, in a wheelchair, they're going to require extensive supports and, you know, perhaps they'll, they'll, you know, be able to be really independent, but need that physical space um, modified to be able to, you know, be independent and maintain that, that capacity. So you really have to link all of that eligibility criteria back to how will SDA mitigate this risk, increase their capacity and really help them meet their goals. So from a participant's perspective, yes, that application process can be a bit daunting, but if you get a specialist who knows what they're doing, um, then you're really there to tell your story, justify why, and have that housing goal that you want to explore those housing options that are really going to increase your capacity and, and let you live the life that you want to live. Yeah. So I think that that's the participant perspective. However, did, have you got any questions about that? Did I miss anything? So what about Appendix H? Oh, fun. Okay. <laughs> Can you tell me, so my understanding of Appendix H is someone is eligible, say, mum with three kids and a husband, mm-hmm. you know, just for the sake of ease of this conversation. (laughs) Uh Families can be more complex. I know. (laughs) But for ease of this conversation, so... We'll go standard family. Yeah. 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 Mum's got a disability of some description and it's extreme and it meets all this criteria, but we don't, because it's mum, dad, kids, we don't want to break the family unit up. No, absolutely not. So we can apply for Appendix H. Yes. Now, one thing I wondered is, do you apply for Appendix H at the same time that you send in all the rest of the paperwork or do you wait until later? Okay. So we've had this discussion a lot and and with some some colleagues that are also doing SDA applications. So it's it's a hot topic. Um, One, because it's it's finally solidified the family solution. So I'm so, so pleased that it's it's getting out there and people know about it and they know that they can apply. So now we just got to figure out how. So our, our advice thus far, and look, things change quickly, but what we always like to do is take a strategy that's, that ensures that if you end up at the AAT, you know, and your original request is met, that you're really, you're going for the best possible outcome. Now, if I was a mother with the three kids and the husband and, and you know, I, I'd had an accident and ended up in a wheelchair and so therefore, you know, my, my housing needs changed, I would never want to assume that I could share with another SDA resident, a housemate, because I plan to stay with my family forever, even if my children are 32 and staying at home. That's my plan. So um, <laughs> I might regret saying that when they start <laughs> eating me out of house and home. Um, but Do you hear that, kids? <laughs> <laughs> but all boys too. They're hungry little hippos. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, you, you start as you aim to finish is that you, if you never plan on sharing with a housemate, whether, you know, you leave your husband and your kids move out, then that's what you would be planning as your housing goal. You know, in the future, if you decided you want to share, great, 
review it. Go back, go back down in terms of funding request. That's fine. But in terms of like knowing what your goals are and knowing that a shared housing solution is probably never for you, then I would be applying for that from the get-go. However, when you get that housing outcome, and let's say in a perfect world, that family received a one resident villa approval. That person can then take that bucket of funding, we call it the SDA bucket of funding, um, and apply it to any vacancy that might be able to take her whole family. And that does include, you know, a house, you know, with multiple bedrooms that were meant for multiple SDA residents, but the Appendix H basically allows us to apply a higher level of funding for that one single resident um, so that the other bedrooms are, you know, not expected to have an SDA resident in it. So in, in answer to your question, I would still go for single resident as the starting point if that is the best outcome long term. If you've got a circumstance where, I don't know, I suppose we've had it sort of happen the reverse, is a lot of people over the last six, seven years have received a shared housing outcome Uh, but they want to live with their family. So they've got a shared housing outcome. They definitely want to live with their family. They don't want to live with a housemate. And so we apply Appendix H and, you know, that property is changed to a one resident property. Their funding is increased to basically allow the investor to take that participant on without being financially disadvantaged. So that's been really, really positive in terms of that person's SDA outcome does actually stay at shared, but the funding is increased while Appendix H is applied in that property to single resident. The only issue I see with that is that in the future, if their relationship changed or, you know, God forbid one of them was to pass on, that person's got a shared outcome. And in times of distress, to me, the last thing you want to be doing is trying to trying to get more funding so you can stay in the property you're in. Whereas if they had a single resident outcome to begin with, then that wouldn't be a problem. Okay. Mm. That makes sense to me. Thank you. That's my strategy for now. (laughs) I I like that. That strategy makes sense to me. Okay. So I I do like that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you know, we're getting a lot of people present with a shared outcome and successfully applying Appendix H. And, you know, just having having families have that sense of security for them and not having to worry about sharing. And, look, I think a lot of people will stay in the property they're in long term. Um, so this is only a circumstance that might present every once in a while. But to me, if you can go for a single resident and justify that, then that's your, that's your best outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So... And we like to end the podcast with our favourite question. Okay. Which is, in your ideal world, what would the future of the NDIS look like? Ooh, it's loaded. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I I have so many things to suggest, Hannah. (laughs) That's why I like asking this question. (laughs) I don't know what's appropriate and what's not. Um... I can't talk about support coordination hours or pricing increase. You can talk no. about support coordination <laughs> hours increase. That's what we want. Yes, it is. I think that's a that's a blanket assumption for everybody is that, yes, yeah, support coordination hours, which is what we operate under a lot of the time, would A, be standardly increased um, and B, you know, the, the line item would also be reassessed every once in a while. Oh, yes. <sighs> and not frozen for four not years. Not frozen. Not frozen. Um, but, no, look, there's there's lots... 
that the NDIS is doing really well. Yes. Um, and like I said, we see the outcomes of it every day, which is great. Two key factors that I feel would be awesome if they were, you know, reassessed or perhaps handled differently. Uh, one, we experienced a roller coaster of information um, with the SDA price review this year. And as much as, you know, the NDIS, I think, released as much as they could in terms of explaining why the prices had been reviewed the way they did, they then didn't seem to have processes in place to manage the change <laughs> of course, of course. They didn't. <laughs> so they kind of like did this big hoo-ha like yes we've changed the prices you know everything's peachy this is why we changed the prices this is how we change the prices good luck and then it was just radio silence and you know sda providers were up in arms like how do we claim the new amount when do we claim the new amount how do or do we refund if they've had a decrease? Like, what the hell? How do we manage this change? And I mean, from the words of a home and living SDA expert in the in the team, they basically said, "Oh, we haven't quite bedded down the changes internally of how to manage that process change." So we'll get back to you. And that was like three to four months ago. <laughs> so uh, we put something in place, but we didn't think of how. how. How to accept those changes internally, you know, how to coordinate the the operation of that. Um, so that was really frustrating. And I think um, investors felt unstable. They didn't know whether they were getting paid more or less. They had no idea when they'd get paid more or less. And we had tenants, you know, that had received a decrease in their funding. Well, how does that affect their lease? You know, um, how how do we justify whether a, whether a property's had GST claimed on it or not? You know, there was just no, there was no process for internally managing that change, which was an absolute disaster. Um, but, you know, you, to the great old private industry that's driving all of this, I, I think there's been a lot of innovation and there's been a lot of conversations and thankfully a lot of information sharing amongst providers and, and companies like ours where we just kind of go, you know what, we did this and it worked, like let's try it. Or, you know, this is how we're interpreting that. How are you interpreting it? And let's work together on making sure we're getting it right so that participants aren't left out in the dry um, and, and that investors are still well looked after. Yeah because we need both to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one thing. What was the other thing? So the other thing was, of course, and the SEA outcomes for participants, you know, like you mentioned with the Appendix H um, and the timeline of getting SDA in your plan, it's just fraught with uncertainty. And, you know, although there's been improvements in how we get determinations and slightly more consistency at times from outcomes received by the NDIS, I think it's still a really unstable process internally from the NDIS. Uh, I hate to, I feel like I'm picking on them, but um, I just wish there was more consistency in SDA outcomes for people. And so we could genuinely say, hey, you meet eligibility criteria XYZ for XYZ SDA property. There's, there's a an assumed amount of certainty that that's what you'll receive, not 
how we operate now, which there is an assumed amount of certainty that you will have to review this decision, <laughs> <laughs> which is, is hard for people to hear when they're excited or when they're, you know, really needing a housing solution soon and they're up against this six to nine month timeline and it's just daunting and it's destabilising and, you know, like moving house is stressful at the best of times yeah. um, in a time where you don't know how you're going to fund something or whether the NDIS is going to say that you're eligible um, is is really frustrating. So that's what I change. Also, mainly an internal NDIS problem. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I think that a lot of people are struggling with the consistency of decision-making coming out of the NDIS yeah. on, as a whole. Yeah. And... It is really stressful when with SDA it does look more black and white than the rest of the NDIS Mm, or at least it can do. (laughs) And so it seems like, well, if I apply XYZ criteria, we should get it. And then nope. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Ba-bam. So, yeah, that I I can definitely see why that is a particular pain point yeah 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 Yeah. if we had those improvements and that you know an increased amount of certainty for both SDA providers investors and participants with the outcomes that the NDIS is pushing it would just alleviate so much anxiety for everybody involved Um, you know and I get it you know you've really got to justify all of that criteria in a really clear format. But if if I've learnt one thing in coming into the NDI sector all these years ago, it's that everybody is different. Yes. You know, there is no template no. that works for everybody um, and there is no planner that thinks the same about everybody. So, you know, you might get an LAC that goes, yeah, great, whiz bang, let's go. Like that SDA looks perfect. And then it goes through their channels of decision-making and you get somebody at the other end that's got a completely different perception of that circumstance um, and so therefore acquits a completely different SDA outcome to it. Um, And it's that consistency in decision-making and that consistency in internal processes so that, you know, us providers out there aren't flying blind all the time, that we can give participants a sense of certainty and, you know, really feel confident that we're doing the right thing by everybody. We're not setting expectations above what it should be because, you know, that's the worst. We don't want to be letting people down. Mm. So, yeah, I think that would really change, I don't know, the the whole sense of energy around SDA for the better. So fingers crossed <laughs> we see that in the coming years. Yeah, we'll wait and see. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's always lovely. <laughs> really appreciate it. Mm. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.